The writer of the New Testament book Hebrews calls Moses a servant of God. You'll, you'll notice that this is actually the way that our passage ends this morning. The final words of our passage are this. They believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. So that is the rubric through which uh, this semester we are connecting the life of Moses with our own lives as men. What is it that Moses teaches us about serving God? What, what does Moses teach us in his own journey about what it means for us to know God deeply and personally and then to find that knowledge flushing itself out in the everydayness, uh, the everyday details and uh, movements of our lives as men? This morning we come to uh, the paradigmatic moment of salvation in the Old Testament. This is the moment that superintends itself upon all the other moments that come after it. Israel will remember this moment as the most life-altering moment in her story. She'll come back to this moment and recall it time and time again, especially when she finds herself mired in confusion and in suffering. This is the moment going forward that God uses to provide the categories for all of salvation on the grandest scale. In the giving of His own Son, Jesus, for the world. So the Bible from this point forward will directly reference or echo this scene hundreds of times. Because the Red Sea crossing that we're about to read this morning provides the language and the imagination for salvation, for all of salvation, as it comes to us from God. Soren Kierkegaard, who was a famous philosopher, wrote famously, not because he was a famous philosopher, but the, it's just a good, a good word for us. He said this, life must be lived forward. That makes, you know, that's very clear, right? <laughs> life must be lived forward. But it can only be understood backwards. Life has to be lived forward, but it can only be understood backwards. And what he was saying is that we really only understand the present or even look towards the future. We understand our lives moving forward through the lens of the past. I want you to think about your own life for a moment this morning. Each one of you have moments that you remember well in your own life, that as you think back on your lives, that stand out to you as life altering moments. Uh, If you're married, maybe it was the moment that you knew that she was the one. You knew she was the one you were going to marry. Maybe you didn't have that realization until you were at the altar. Maybe you didn't have it until you woke up the next morning. But at some point, if you're married, you knew that she was the one, right? Um, Maybe if you're a father, it was the moment you, you, you you held your child for the first time and thought, wow, this is awesome and absolutely terrifying all at the same time. I can't believe this is happening. Maybe it was the moment that you opened the mail and received an acceptance letter that you had wanted for so long. For many of you, maybe the moment of your conversion, the moment that you think back when God experientially uh, took hold of your heart in a new way, took hold of your affections so that you knew that you were a sinner, and that you knew that you needed to be saved by Him, that you were in deep uh, um, debt to Him, that He had to do something in your life to save you, the moment of your conversion. And then, of course, there are painful moments as well, right? Uh, the moment that uh, um, you or someone you knew received um, a diagnosis that changed everything. 
the, the moment that the phone call came in the middle of the night, that it was unexpected, utterly unexpected. Um, the moment that your parents set you down in high school or middle school to tell you that they were separating, that they would never be together again. We have these moments personally. We have them on a national scale. They're the where were you when moments, right? I remember where I was. I don't know if you remember where you were when you saw the buildings on fire, 9-11. I remember where I was um, when the, the Challenger exploded. When I saw that scene, I was young, but I remember exactly where I was when I saw that scene for the first time. I don't remember where I was when JFK was assassinated, but some of you do. You remember, it was the remember when moment. The moment that altered the course of history. At least that we remember and think of it that way. These are huge moments, big life-changing moments that we look in the past to understand the present. But this moment in the Bible, the scene in the Bible is different from all of those others. The Red Sea crossing is not just one major moment. This is the paradigmatic moment in the Bible when all the other moments will return to for their own significance and their own perspective. The paradigmatic moment even for your own salvation this morning. Let's read together now Exodus chapter 14, verses 10 through 31. We're going to pray and ask God to teach us how this moment makes sense of all of our other moments in our lives as men. When Pharaoh drew near, it says in verse 10, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to the wilderness to die? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die here in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. See the salvation of the Lord which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you only have to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the people of Israel may go through the sea and on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then, the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming in between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other the the whole night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and he made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. The people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on the dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, all his chariots, all his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces. And he threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. 
clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned, and it covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Let me pray for us. Father, we do ask this morning that you would help us to see the freedom that you have gained for us in Jesus, that we would live in that freedom well, that you would free us to serve you, to believe in Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. So we come this morning um, to the event for which the book is named the Exodus. The Exodus is uh, the final plague that marks the climactic deliverance of Israel from their Egyptian bondage. Now you may know this, but the name, the word Exodus in translation means departure. The word Exodus means escape. And one of the things that the Bible teaches uh, clearly is that salvation is fundamentally an Exodus. Uh, salvation is fundamentally an escape from bondage. It's a departure from being enslaved to things into the freedom of serving God. Here's what I want you to see as men this morning from this passage. First of all, I want you to see what it is that we're supposed to escape from, that we need to escape from. Why do we need escaping? What is it that we need escaping from? Second, I want us to see together how that escape actually occurs. How does it work? How does it happen? How does the departure happen? And then finally, I want us to see what now, what difference does it make? So first, what do we need to escape from? What does the passage teach us that we need to escape from? Well, the passage very clearly teaches us that we need an escape from slavery. Egypt here is a paradigm for slavery. That apart from the saving work of God, we are slaves living under the power of things that have mastered us. Now listen to me this morning. This is not just an insight that is parochial, that, is, that just comes from Christianity. Nor is it anything new. Euripides, the classical Athenian who lived 2,500 years ago, wrote this. He said, no one is truly free. Everyone is a slave. Everyone is a slave to wealth or to fortune or to the law or other people. But everyone is, uh, is a slave to something or to somebody. 25 years ago, Euripides said this. Not a Christian. We've talked about this before, especially last semester if you were here in our study of Romans, so I don't want to belabor the principle, but for time's sake, I do want to duplicate four clear and uh, clarifying points that a pastor in New York named Tim Keller makes on this very uh, uh, reality. Very, very clear and simple um, points. Here's the logic. Number one, Keller says, you have to live for something. 
You have to live for something. It is impossible to live for nothing, even if it's for yourself. You have to live for something. Number two, he says, whatever you are living for, you are serving because you answer to that thing. You have to have it. Whatever you're living for, uh, you're serving that thing because you have to have it. Number three, it can be good or bad. Uh, that just shows the range of possibilities. But I would say this, almost, almost always, it's, it's a structural good that God has given in creation. It's almost always a good thing. Uh, a relationship. Uh, work. Power. We were meant to have power. Wealth. Resources. Uh, uh, your, your children. It, it's almost, it can be a good or bad, but it's almost always a good thing. And then finally, this is, uh, this is extremely clarifying, especially in light of this passage. Whatever you build your life around, it will come after you. And it will say to you, serve me or die. Whatever you build your life around, no matter if you try to escape it, it will come after you and it will say to you, serve me or die. The the paragraph before this that we did not read essentially says this. It says that when Pharaoh realized what was going on, it's like he came to his senses. That he changed his heart, he changed his mind towards Israel and he readied his war chariots and he got all of his armies ready and he started pursuing Israel. Now why did he do that? Was he... Was he up for negotiations, do you think? Does he ready his war chariots in order to charm Israel, to convince them that as a ruler, he's so hospitable and good, just come back? No. Pharaoh readies his war chariots because he has put Israel under the sentence of death. He's put them under a sentence of death. The verdict has been handed down. He is going to Israel to say, look, you have two options. You can serve me or you can die. The Bible says that whatever you're living for, whatever that thing is, if it's not God, if it is not God, that thing will enslave you. And not only will it enslave you, but if you try to leave it, it will pursue you. And it will give you two options. You can serve me or you can die. Now think about that for a moment. How does that really work? I mean, with these structural goods, with money or power or relationships or anything else that is that God created fine for us to have, how, how can that thing really have a voice in our lives? Well, I want you to notice something important. Israel's, prompt, Israel's problem in the passage is with a real enemy that is outside of herself, okay? In other words, and you, this is very, you know, this is pretty obvious, but, but uh, Israel's problem is not a psychological problem. Israel's problem here is not that uh, their heads are in the wrong place, that they've lost perspective. Israel's problem is not that they have impure hearts, I don't care how pure the hearts of the, Egypt, uh, the Israelites are, Egypt is coming after them. No matter how clear their perspective is, Egypt is coming after them to claim them or to kill them. That is to say, therapy cannot save Israel. There is a real enemy outside of them, real defiance against God that is coming to them, that is pursuing them, that will say to them, serve me or die. The Apostle Paul knew this well. In Ephesians 6, he writes this. We, the church, men, (laughs) he says, we do not wrestle, we do not struggle against the things that we see. We don't just struggle against flesh and blood, but against, he says, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. That's a little spooky, right? It's a little haunted housey. But this is, the Bible is teaching the the same thing in in, uh, here, 
In Exodus, as, as Paul is saying in Ephesians, salvation is not simply an escape from wrong theology. It's not simply an escape from the impurities you find in yourself. Salvation is an escape from spiritual powers and forces that are real, that are behind the things that we serve, that want to destroy us. If you were here during Winter Grace, you would have heard Derek Thomas say this. If you weren't, it's okay, I'm going to say it again. It's uh, very clarifying. He just said this, you can make too much of the demonic realm. You can. You can see a demon, you know, behind every uh, uh, mismatched sock, right? Every time you look in the drawer, there's a demon that did it. You can make way too much of the demonic realm, but it's probably not our problem, right? Our problem is probably that we make too little of it. There are real powers behind the scenes. There are real powers in defiance against God behind the things that we are tempted to serve that will pursue us. And it will, and it will uh, bring things before us and tell us, look, you either serve us or you have no life. You will die. That is the first thing we need to escape from. A bondage outside of ourselves. But second, I want you to also notice this. We also need to escape from ourselves. Not just from the evil that is outside of us, but also from the evil that's inside of us. Look at me at verses 11 and 12. I want you to hear again the voices of the people. Now think about this with me. Here's what they're saying. Moses records this. Uh, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? You hear the sarcasm? Now listen to the second one, though. (laughs) This is good. Uh, Is not this what we said in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. Uh, Actually, no, it's not what you said in Egypt. Emphatically, they said the exact opposite when they were in Egypt. Uh, Moses records it for us in Exodus 4. It says that Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs inside of the people. And guess what they said? They did not say we're not interested. They did not say leave us alone. They said we're in. The Bible says they believed and they worshiped God and they said we are all in. Now I want you to think about how crazy this is at this point. All right, put yourself in the place of the Egyptians. They have, I mean, excuse me, the Israelites. The Israelites at this point, they have seen the plagues, right, against the Egyptians. They have witnessed the deliverance of God in the Passover. At this point, they are technically no longer under the authority of Pharaoh. And yet they are begging to go back to Egypt. The people of God have left their bondage, and yet they are utterly self-deceived about what is best for them. They can't trust themselves to do what is best for themselves. One thing I love about um, uh, having young kids is their honesty. Uh, you know, and as a pastor, the material that they provide for, for mornings like this, right? The other day I was ironing clothes. It's a very rare sight, but I was ironing clothes. And, uh, and Charlie, my second, was standing there talking to me. And I said, hey, look, I'll be right back. Don't touch the iron. So you know this is going, right? In another room, I hear all of a sudden, ow! I come back. Charlie, what did you do? I touched the iron. Really? Did you, did you know the iron was hot? Yes, Daddy, I knew the iron was hot. Charlie, why in the world would you touch a hot iron? Daddy, I just like to do bad things sometimes. <laughs> 
Of course you do. <laughs> there is, listen to me, this is true for us. He's uh, almost six, it's true for you. There is an internal, irrational pull towards evil that lives inside of us. Left to ourselves, we will rationalize a return to Egypt, a return to bondage. Look at Moses' response in verse 13. It's actually perfect. It's a perfect response, right? Uh, He says, fear not, stand firm, trust God. The Lord will fight for you. And the ESV, in our translation this morning, softens it a, a bit. But he basically says at the very end, he says, shut up. He says, shut up. Stop talking like that. And as a quick aside this morning, um, let me just say this. You need a Moses in your life. Like, you need friends who will not leave you to yourself in your own moment of irrationality. One of my favorite pictures of friendship, of especially the friendship that uh, is, uh, would hold us accountable, comes from the Odyssey. So you probably know the story. Odysseus is journeying home from the Trojan War. He goes through all these, you know, these traps and trials. And one of the trials is that they have to move past in their ship the land of the sirens. The sirens. The sirens had the siren song, the enchanted song. That if anyone hears it, what do they do? They, they, they move their boat towards the island. It crashes on the rocks, and they die. So the island, it says, is, is just scattered with skeletons, with bones everywhere. So Odysseus says, look, men, you've got to put wax in your ears. So that you can't hear the song, but not me. I don't know why he does this. This is the stupid part. He says, not me. I want to hear the song. And so uh, he says, but in order for me to hear the song, you have to tie me to the mast. So they have wax in their ears, and they tie Odysseus to the mast. And he listens to the song, and he begs, and he pleads. The whole time as he's listening for them to release him. That he made a mistake. And you know what his friends do? They, they keep him there tied to the mast. They will not untie him and leave him to go kill himself. Men, do you have friends like that? Do you have friends like Moses who will tell you to shut up? Do you have friends that would rather see you tied to a mast rather than to to see yourself go in a direction, going back in the direction of Egypt, to return to bondage, to kill yourself? You need friends like that in your life. Now look, one of the things the Bible wants you to see at this point I think, is this train wreck that is coming in Israel's story. So think about what we've said so far. We've only said, look, what do we need delivering from? You might call this the push and the pull of sin. There is a collision happening or occurring at this point in the text that is gaining momentum from both sides. On one hand, there is an evil outside of of God's people, a defiant army coming for God's people to say to them, look, serve me or die. And on the other hand, there is an evil inside of them, a deviant heart that is being drawn back towards Egypt, that is saying, look, let us go back, let us go back. Egypt is moving towards them. Their hearts are drawn back to Egypt. The collision is coming. And so what hope is there? How does the escape happen in the midst of this? I want you to say that God literally has to get in between them. You see that in the the passage? God literally to stop the collision, gets in between them. Look at verses 19 and 20 again. This is the first time it happens. The angel of the Lord has been going before them the whole time, and Moses clearly stops and says, this is what happened. The angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming in between 
the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. The only way to stop the fatal collision is for God to decisively act and intervene on their behalf. The God who has been leading them has to turn around and get in between, to put himself in between, to wedge himself in between Egypt and Israel. Now, why does he do that? Why does the passage say that God does that? Now, why not just give the people over to what they want? Why does he do that? Because he's nice? Uh, Because God is gracious, he'll do what's best for us even when we don't deserve it? Well, that's kind of, that's part of it, but it's way too simple. You know, commentators have long pointed out the role of Moses here. Especially how strange the story gets in verses 12 through 15. Look there with me. So here's what happens in verses 12 through 15. What are the people saying again? They're saying, let us go back to Egypt. We want to go back. Take us back. They, in fact, at that point, in their, um, in their complaint, there is no mention at all of God. God has no, um, uh, he, he doesn't figure in their calculations. Let us go back to Egypt. And then Moses, what does he do? What kind of response does he give? A good response or a bad response? What is it? Good response or bad response? Fear not. Stand firm. Trust God. Shut up. A good response, right? Like it's perfect. He gives the perfect response. And then the Lord says to Moses, he addresses Moses next and says, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Do you see what's happening here? God is actually rebuking Moses. In the story, Moses is the one rebuked by God. Did Moses cry to God? No, the people did. It was their complaining. It was their complaining. It was their sin. And yet Moses himself receives the reprimand. Moses does nothing wrong, and yet he receives the brunt of God's anger towards the people. Why? Why? Because Moses is the mediator. He's the go-between. And the guilt of the people is attributed to him. So here's what's going on in the story, the big picture. God is standing between Egypt and Israel. God stands between them to deliver them decisively from the evil that is pursuing them and the evil that is drawing them backwards. But he only does so after Moses has first stood in between God and Israel. God saves the people from Egypt, but only after Moses has saved the people from God. In fact, this happens even more clearly later in Exodus, when the people are bad once again, and Moses says to God, forgive them, Lord. Forgive them. Forgive them. But if you will not forgive them, then blot me out of your book instead. That's Exodus 32, 32. Forgive them. But if you will not forgive them, then take me instead. Who says that? Who says that? Who goes in between and says, look, forgive them, but if you won't do it, if you won't do it, take me instead. Who does that? A mediator does it. And it's this grace, the grace of a man who will stand in the gap, it is this grace, this man, not God himself, God through him, but Moses is the one who decisively leads the people through the waters of judgment. Did you notice that the people pass, the people of Israel pass through the waters untouched. And the waters drown the Egyptians. Why? They're the unmediated ones. They have no mediator. And the waters close in around them. And guess what happens at that moment for for Israel? The sentence of death 
that was issued by Pharaoh. The verdict that he issued that had gathered all the armies of Egypt, all the chariots together, that verdict has been canceled. The verdict of death is gone. The waters swallow the Egyptians, and Israel all of a sudden, in a moment, has a totally new status. They are free. So how does it work? How do we escape this fatal collision, the fatal collision between this defiant evil outside of us that would pursue us, that comes for us, and the the deviant hearts within us that draw us back towards bondage? How is it that God fights for us and not against us? Well, the Bible will say it in so many words over and over and over again. You men need a mediator, not just a friend. You need a mediator who will stand in the gap. You need someone who will rise up and say on your behalf, look, take me instead. Forgive them, forgive them, but if not, then take me instead. Blot me out of your book instead. Do you know this is really amazing that when Luke, the gospel writer Luke, when he is telling the story of the transfiguration of Jesus, when Jesus is transformed into this glorious figure Uh, in front of a few of his disciples. He's telling that story, and and the people that join Jesus as he's transfigured are Elijah and Moses. So you have Jesus, Elijah, and Moses. And here's what Luke writes. Luke says that uh, Moses and Elijah appeared with him on the mountain. Then he says this. What did they talk about? He says they spoke of his departure, which which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. They spoke of his departure which Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The Greek word used for departure there is the word exodus. So you have Moses and Jesus talking together on the Mount of Transfiguration about the exodus that Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, will you just imagine that scene for a moment? You have Moses, the man that we've been studying, the man who led the first exodus. The man who years ago had stood in the gap for the people, who took the rebuke of God on behalf of the people, and then walked them, literally walked them through the waters of judgment. He is now speaking with his maker. He is now speaking with his mediator. He is now speaking face to face with the man who is about to lead his exodus on a Roman cross. The man who will not only take the rebuke that we deserve, but the man who will take everything else we deserve too. The man who will allow himself to be swallowed by the waters of God's judgment. To to have those waters rush upon him. Moses didn't have to do that. He'll be swallowed by the waters of God's judgment and condemnation so that we might pass through those same waters untouched with the verdict and sentence of death lifted off, off of us completely. And finally, and finally, at the cross, for you and for me to be counted as free men. That would be quite the conversation, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, Moses looking face to face into the, into the face of the one who would say on his behalf, on our behalf, oh Lord, take me instead. Forgive them, but blot me out instead. And what the Bible wants you to see this morning and wanted Israel to see at the time is this is the paradigmatic moment in your life if you're a Christian. This is the paradigmatic moment in your life. When Jesus himself stepped up, when he raised his hand, when he stood in the gap for you on the cross, allowing himself to be blotted out on your behalf. 
The Apostle Paul connects the two in 1 Corinthians 10. He says that, look, the Exodus is your baptism. The Exodus is your baptism. It is the moment when you pass through the waters of judgment untouched. It is the moment when the verdict of death was lifted and you have a new freedom, a new status to serve God. And essentially what Paul is saying is, men, every day, if this is the paradigmatic of your moment of your life, it means this, that you have to remember your baptism. Wherever you go, if you go into work, your family situation, everywhere else, remember your baptism. Your baptism means that you have been claimed, that the old powers are gone, that Egypt has been defeated, and that you stand as free men, free now to serve the living God. A few years ago, I, I read a book by uh, David McCullough called 1776. That's what it's about. It's about the beginning of uh, the Revolutionary War. And one of the most dominant themes of the book is that um, the Americans, by all accounts, by just, you know, by the, on paper, should have lost the war. So in that moment, I don't know if you knew this, but we had, we had no standing army. We were a collection of state militias. We were outnumbered. We were outgunned, and we were fighting against the greatest military force on the planet at that time, the British Empire. So Britain seizes control of New York in the fall of that year. Uh, they put the Americans on the run. They chased the Americans into New Jersey. And then I guess they just had like these customary rules at the time. I guess it was considered good sportsmanship. You kind of bunker down, and you just quit for the winter, right? And so um, they stopped their pursuit in December because of the winter. And instead, they bunkered down in Trenton, New Jersey. And you know where the story's going, probably. You know that it was Washington on December 25th that made that famous Delaware River crossing, and he, he surprised the British troops at Trenton. And there he won one of the most decisive and uh, turning point battles of the entire war. What most people don't realize, though, is that Washington didn't stop there. He went right from there, and he was popular with his troops, but he marched his cold, tired troops to Princeton, New Jersey, and once again routed the British there. At a time when other generals were content to sit atop a hill somewhere and watch the battle unfold, Washington made it a point to be on the front lines in those battles fighting with his men. He was there with them, fighting with them, fighting for them. And the sight of that, the sight of watching this, uh, this man of great stature fighting in the ranks of his army with his men caused one uh, undecorated soldier to write this later on. This is what McCullough records. He says this, I shall never forget what I felt. When I saw Washington, when I saw him brave all the dangers of the field and his important life, as it were, hanging by a hair with with a thousand deaths flying around him, believe me, he says, believe me, at that moment, I did not think of myself. Believe me, I didn't think of myself. The man saw Washington, this great man of stature, risking his life in a battle that was still yet undecided, and it gave him the courage, and it gave him the freedom to say, believe me, at that moment, I didn't have to think about myself anymore. Imagine then what seeing Jesus should do for us. Imagine what seeing Jesus, God in the flesh, not just a man of stature, but God himself, not just risking his life, but actually giving it away. Not for a battle still yet undecided, but for a war that's already been won. What kind of freedom, what kind of courage should that give us to say as men this morning? I look at him and believe me, I thought not of myself. Men, God has delivered you in Christ from the evil that pursues you, that's outside of you. 
And he has delivered you from the evil inside of you. Not so that you might live any way you want, but so that you might say, in the freedom of God, believe me, I thought not of myself. Believe me, I didn't have to think of myself anymore. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the paradigm of salvation you've given us in the Exodus. We thank you for our own Exodus. Thank you for Jesus' departure. Um, Lord, when he not only uh, endured the pain, the physical pain of the cross, but when he in that moment said, blot me out instead, and you were pleased um, to let the waters of your judgment swallow him so that we might be free. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live as free men. To say, O oh Lord, uh, believe me, I thought not of myself. God, give us the courage to say that. Lord, forgive our wandering hearts. Bind them to the, to the grace of Jesus on the cross. Forgive us for wanting our old slaveries back. Give us other men in our lives who will tie us to the mass if need be to save us. Thank you for loving us in all the ways that you have. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.